Okay, hello everybody. I'm so sorry I couldn't be there today, um, but I know that you're going to miss me, so I decided to make a little recording for you if you want to follow along. Today we're going to be talking about infancy and childhood and also social development, or I'm sorry, childhood social development. Um, and we are in the day three slides. You probably already know that because that's how you found this recording. So congratulations. Anyway, let's start with some social development. I'm just going to kind of zip through these slides. Thankfully, there's not a whole lot. Um, and then you can play GimKit. There's that link in the additional materials folder. Um, practice some of these terms. There's Quizlet already there as well. Or, and here's a good idea, get started on that reading guide that's extra credit Unless you don't like extra credit, then don't do that. Um, totally up to you. But anyway, let's get started with social development. Um, with social development, we know this. People are social creatures, um, and we have a need to belong. So we have this very natural social development. Um, and with social development comes things like attachment. So attachment is an emotional tie with another person. Think about if you've ever had a pet or even, even if you know a kid, either you have, you know, um, a younger sibling or a younger cousin, whatever. Um, and they have like that emotional tie with, you or you have an emotional tie with them or maybe you have an emotional tie with your pet i don't know you can think of a thousand different examples i'm sure um but that attachment is that emotional and that's the key there that emotional tie with another person um and this can form when we talk about it in terms of social development and in terms of infancy and childhood social development, attachment forms shortly after birth. And this is a critical period in infancy and in an in infant's social development. And for infants, attachment is that number one social achievement. So that's the very first like bit of social achievement that they do. And it's the most important attachment in its always to their caregiver. Um, so whether it's the mother or whether it's, um, uh, you know, somebody else who might be giving, being their primary caregiver for whatever reason, um, that's going to be that infant's number one social attachment. And there are two parts to this. There's a contact and then there's familiarity. So um, and as you can imagine, contact is like that physical touch, being in contact with a person. Um, and we'll get to that more in a second. And then familiarity is, again, as you can imagine, just being familiar with a person, seeing them all the time. That's why it's a primary caregiver or a mother in this instance. Um, some other terms to know for an infant's social development is stranger anxiety. Before assimilation and accommodation develop, infants do get, you know, anxious around strangers. They don't know strangers. They're still, they, they know that you're not mom. They know that you're not dad, but you don't quite look the same. They're still kind of developing in that way. They also have separation anxiety. Um, 
and with separate with separation anxiety um, that happens after object permanent develops and if you're thinking whoa this is navidad i totally don't know what object permanence means go back to day one take a look at that and then come back and regroup yourself but um that's going to be in our or day two day one day two look at look at an earlier side you I, I know you can find it i have faith it's in day two that's my final answer anyway both happen during what's called the senso motor stage again that's in day day two under piaget um so go back to day two and take a look at object permanence and take a look at that senso sent goodness gracious senso motor sent i apologize <laughs> senso remotor stage i'm just gonna let that one go it is late i'm tired we're, we're going to deal with it. Anyway, contact. Let's go back to that term. Contact. It's an old theory saying that babies form attachments to fulfill nourishment and safety needs. A guy named Harry Harlow, he was a psychologist. He said that babies form attachments to fulfill comfort and safety needs. So he says that contact is even more important than food. Obviously, food is what's going to keep a baby alive, but that comfort and that safety is what a baby really craves as well. And it's all part of that social development. Now, when you get to slides six and seven, and even into slide eight a little bit, you're going to see some weird images. Be prepared. Let me explain what this picture is and what it is that you're seeing here. Um, you're seeing a monkey on, if you're looking at slide six, you can see a bigger picture of it. Um, but you're seeing the cutest little monkey ever. And he, or they, this monkey, I don't know, he, she, this monkey, um, is leaning up against a clothed mother surrogate. Now there's two surrogates here. There's one that has a cloth over it and then there's one that's just made out of wire. Um, both look equally terrifying, let's be honest, um, but the monkey will cling to the one with the cloth over it because it mimics more of a mother than the wire one does. And the wire mother provides the nourishment in this experiment that was being done. The wire one provides nourishment and provides food for the monkey. And the cloth mother does not. But the monkey chooses the cloth-covered surrogate because of that comfort and because of the contact, thus strengthening Harlow's theory that contact is more important than food. And if you go to slide eight, you will see another terrifying picture of both surrogates, but an adorable picture of the monkey. So it's the best of both worlds. Anyway, let's move on to that other term that I mentioned earlier, familiarity. Familiarity is, again, as you guessed it, familiar or safe. Um, so how do we know who is familiar and safe? And we know this through something called imprinting. 
Now, I'm pretty sure imprinting was used in the Twilight series. <laughs> so if you read those or watched any of the movies, I apologize. Um, but also, not that, well, it's actually kind of similar now that I think about it, but get that out of your mind. Well, let's put this actual term in instead. Imprinting is, again, a part of that critical period, and humans do not imprint, but um, imprinting is really just an attachment, and it's a long, complex process. You can see, I believe this is a picture of Conrad Lorenz in that in slide nine there, um, but you can see uh, six ducks, seven ducks following a man in this picture, and that's because they were imprinted. Um, that um, Lorenz became a familiar face. It became he became safety for them, and so they imprinted on the psychologist again, completing a study to see how animal behavior worked. Now, again, moving on to slide 10, we're going to talk about forming attachments. We're going to talk about this over the next two slides. Mary Ainsworth showed that there are different types of parenting that affect how attachments are formed. And two of the types of parenting are responsive parenting and non-responsive parenting. Responsive parenting, as you can imagine, is more time spent with the child, more responsive. Um, the child becomes familiar with the caregiver, whereas non-responsive parenting is, you guessed it, just the opposite of that. Less time spent with the child, less time, or let the, the less time that's spent with the child, the less the child is familiar with that caregiver. So Ainsworth found this in her own study. Um, and responsive parenting and non-responsive parenting are pretty straightforward, um, but it kind of shows us how humans can form attachments and how spending time um, with a, a child, if you are the primary caregiver, um, is really important in the developmental stages. Okay, so moving on to forming attachments, um, an experiment that Mary Ainsworth did um, to show how strong an attachment was between an, or a baby and their caregiver, um, or in other words, she was trying to observe the attachment in children. Um, she conducted the strange situation design. And the strange situation design, it and, and there's a video um, linked where it says strange situation design. I highly suggest you watch it. It'll do a really great job of kind of explaining what's going on here in this experiment. Um, but basically, let's say that you're in a doctor's office with uh, a mother and their baby and the mother's present they're playing with each other and then um the mom ends up or a, a, another person comes in tries to interact with the baby everything's going fine um and then the mom leaves what's going to happen so that's what they're trying to see what's going to happen not just once the mother leaves how's the baby going to react and you'll see that in this video but more importantly how the baby reacts when the mother comes back in that reunion period and that's showing 
Ainsworth in her experiment, how strong that attachment is between the mother and the baby. So please go and watch that video. It's only a few minutes long um, and it does a really great job of explaining the strange situation design. Okay, let's move on to the three general responses or three general types to forming an attachment. They are secure attachment, insecure attachment, or resistant, and then insecure attachment, detached, and avoidant. Um, so let's go through each one of them individually. Secure attachment this happens 70% of the time. A child plays comfortably with others. They explore their new environment. They're not clingy to their mother. They cry when the parent leaves the room, and then they run to them when they return, kind of like what we saw in the strange situation design video. In a resistant, insecure attachment, this happens about 10% of the time. This happens when a child does not play or they don't play comfortably um, and they don't explore their new environment. They're clingy to their parent. Instead of exploring, they protest loudly when the parent leaves. They resist contact with the parent at the reunion and they act angry towards the parent. So in all cases here, the child is resistant. They're resistant to this new environment. They're resistant to exploring and playing. They're resistant when their parent leaves. They're resistant when their parent comes back. Um, so that's how you can remember it. They're just continuously resistant in all kind of forms of, of this situation. Um, and then there's insecure attachment or avoidant. With insecure attachment or avoidant, um, this is a detached or avoidant attachment. This happens about 20% of the time. This is when a child does not play or they do not play comfortably. They do not explore the new environment. They are indifferent towards the parent. They don't play or explore. They don't care if the parent leaves the room. They don't try and seek contact upon reunion, and they treat strangers the same as the parent. So they're just avoiding the parent at all cost. Um, and so that's that third response or type of forming attachment. Now, there are some effects of early attachment um, Eric Erickson is a psychologist who showed or who explains these effects of early attachment. Um, he came up with social competence and basic trust. With social competence, there's more nurture than nature, and social competence is gained through secure attachment. Basic trust, on the other hand, is when you have a sense the world is safe and predictable. People are trustworthy, and this is formed during early childhood. Um, so social competent, competence is um, kind of more using nature, using your experiences, or a, a, a baby or a child using their experiences more, whereas basic trust is 
you know, thinking, okay, the world's safe. I've been safe so far. So I'm just going to trust that I'm going to stay safe. Now, there are types of attachments that seem to influence, or these types of attachments, I should say, influence later life, especially in relationships. Early childhood treatment by parents only is only one indicator. So if you have secure attachment, you have healthier relationships, basic trust, social competence. And if you have insecure attachment, the opposite is true. You don't have healthy relationships, you don't have basic trust, and you don't have social competence. Other early effects of early attachments on later relationships um, can happen through self-concept. This is um, when an infant's first major social achievement, attachment, um, a childhood, a childhood's um, positive sense of self, this all begins with self-concept, which is the sense of one's identity, personal worth, etc. So all of this happens through self-concept. Self-concept is the first step, or I'm sorry, <laughs> the first step of self-concept is self-awareness. And this grows until about 10 years old. So you're just starting to become more self-aware. And you can, if you've ever watched a, a baby play in the mirror, you can see how this mirror experiment might work. Um, before six months, um, a baby doesn't, isn't, they, they don't like recognize themselves in the mirror as a person. After six months, they believe it's another child. And then around 15 to 18 months, they realize it's themselves looking at themselves in the mirror. Um, so um, and there actually is there a video attached to this. Okay, no, the video isn't there. Um, I'll get a link to that video um, where you can see um, a baby looking at, like, playing with themselves in the mirror, like, looking at themselves, and there's, like, makeup on the baby's nose, and the baby's trying to wipe it off of the mirrored baby, and it's them, and they're confused, and it's adorable. Anyway, um, so I'll try and find a video to that and then I'll link it in the additional materials folder if I can. Um, but let's move on and continue with self-esteem. Um, or I'm sorry, let's, wait, did I already say that? Self-awareness. Yeah. Okay. So self-concept is the self, a sense of one's identity, personality, strengths, weaknesses, personal worth, etc. Self-esteem is how we feel about who we are and who you are. Um, so, I mean, we hear self-esteem all the time. Do you feel good about yourself? You have high self-esteem. Do you feel not so great about yourself? That's low self-esteem. And then self-efficiency. Um, I'm sorry, self-efficacy. If I could read, that would make things a whole lot better. Self-efficacy is the belief about a capability of achieving goals. 
So what you can and what you can't do. So if you believe in yourself and you believe that you can achieve goals, then you have a high self-efficacy. And if you don't think that you can achieve your goals, then you have a low self-efficacy. My goal for you is to always have a side. My goal for you is to always have a high self-efficacy because you should always believe that you're capable of achieving your goals. I believe in you. You should too. Um, Okay. We're so close to being done. I'm so tired. It's been a long day. Let's get into child rearing practices. And that is the last bit here for our lesson. Okay, so for child rearing practices, there are, we're going to talk about three different parenting styles. Actually, we're going to talk about a few different parenting styles. Um, there is a video linked here on the 22nd slide, so slide number 22, and it goes over three parenting styles. So again, we're going to go over four, but this one goes over three. It puts in perspective of movies. All three of the movies that they talk about are phenomenal. Brave is underrated. Mean Girls is not overhyped, but I don't think I can suggest it to you because I don't I don't know if it would be considered school appropriate at all. Um, and then The Lion King is a classic. Anyway, so go ahead, check out those three different parenting styles just to kind of get get an idea of what they are. And then we have a, a fourth bonus one for you that we'll talk about in a minute. Anyway, so child rearing practices, they affect our early attachments and self-concept. And a psychologist named Diana, oh, I did not practice saying her name. Oh man, Baumrind, Diana, my dear Diana. Um, She is the one who came up with these four major parenting style. So there's authoritarian, there's authoritative or democratic, there's permissive or laissez-faire, which if you remember in U.S. history class, a laissez-faire or even government, I guess, or even econ, oh man, reaches into all of the social sciences. Laissez-faire means hands-off. So permissive is also hands-off. So laissez-faire, hands-off. And then uninvolved, or neglectful is going to be a fourth one. So let's go ahead and talk about authoritarian. With authoritarian, the parent is the boss. Um, They are coercive. They say things like, don't interrupt, keep your room clean, don't stay out late because I said so. Um, Long-term, children have little control with an authoritarian parent lower self-esteem maybe. Sometimes they might feel helpless and incompetent, unable to make decisions because they never had to. Um, So in the video on slide 22, um, Mufasa, let's not play it, that's going to sound weird. Oh gosh. Um, Mufasa from The Lion King is going to be our example from the, or for the authoritative parent. Um, 
And I think that that's a good example. Other examples, if you've ever seen that 70s show, Red is a classic example of an authoritarian parent. Um, Cameron's dad and Ferris Bueller's Day Off and Neil's dad, for sure, in Dead Poets Society. And if you have no idea what any of those things are that I just said, go and watch him. Dead Poets Society does not have a happy ending, though. Um, so maybe screen that first with somebody before you watch it. Anyway, authoritative or democratic parent. Um, with this, parents and children negotiate and discuss. They are confrontive. They're um, maybe demanding and responsive. Parents have control by setting clear rules, but they encourage their children to discuss those rules. Long term, the children have a greatest sense of control, high self-esteem, and high self-reliance. Um, so the mom in Brave, and I forget her name and I apologize, but the mom in Brave would be an example of an authoritative or democratic parent. Other examples would be like Mary Poppins or Uncle Phil. I love Uncle Phil from Fresh Prince and Danny Tanner. Oh, oh my gosh, he got two. This is killing me. Um, Danny Tanner from Full House. Oh man, two of my TV dads not here with us anymore. Excuse me while I mourn their losses again. Okay, let's go on to permissive or laissez-faire, hands-off. The children have the final say. Um, there's unrestraining. Parents make few demands. They don't have a lot of limits. They use little punishment long-term. The children have too much control, but few guidelines. They're never able to be reined in. Um, and it can lead to aggressive and immature behavior. So the mom in Mean Girls is a classic example. Regina George's mom that is in Mean Girls is a classic example of a permissive parent. Other examples would be um, Violet's dad in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and, um, oh, and Regina's mom in Mean Girls. Yes, I already said that. And then the last one that's not in that video is the uninvolved or neglectful parent. Um, they're the egocentric adult. They don't notice their child. They're not demanding. They're not responsive. They're careless, inattentive, do not seek to have a close relationship with their children long-term. I mean, I think we can, it's called, oh, sorry, it's called neglectful. So long-term, it doesn't sound very positive. It's bad. Um, and children can have a poor academic and social outcomes. Some TV examples are going to be, um, oh, I hope you've never seen Arrested Development or Euphoria for that matter. Um, but those are two examples. I can't think of another one off the top of my head. Um, I really want to say like any parent from Pretty Little Liars, honestly. Um, but I hope you didn't see that show either because it was terrible. Um, but anyway, so those are just some examples. Now, I want to end with this, well, with two things. One, please do not go home and tell your parent 
which parenting style they have used. I do not want to be the cause of a really sad dinner conversation, okay? Um, maybe that's something that you can, <laughs> maybe that's something that you can keep to yourself, or we can talk about it next week when we see each other. Uh, that's fine too. Um, but please, this is just for AP psychology purposes. This is so that you can see what Deanna's um, child rearing practices are so that you can understand the four major um, types of parenting um, and so that you can do well on the AP exam at the end of the quarter or at the end of the year. Please, please don't go to your parents saying, Mrs. Navidad said that you are an authoritative parent. And this is going to affect me in this way. Please don't go home and say that. I don't want emails about it. Thank you in advance. Anyway, the last thing I want to say is there is an exit ticket in Schoology for you. That's the last slide here. Um, make sure you do it. Get it done. Go play some Gim Kid. Or maybe if you need some time to relax, you can do that too. Or if you want to work on your reading guide for extra credit, go ahead and get that started. Respect yourself. Get it done. Anyway, I'll see you all next week. And bye.